another episode of What Is My Podcast About, a podcast where we take a different topic each episode and try to figure out if that's what we're talking about. Uh, today I am joined by our guests, Peter Akerley. Hey. And Matthew Grace. Hello. And I myself am Keith Ramsey, same as always. And today's topic is Dungeons and Dragons. Ooh. Uh, give a special shout out to our secret fourth member as being uh, the person who suggested this episode. Even though we might have had it on the list already, we'll still give you the credit, I suppose. Seems fair. Uh, so, we're kind of getting a little bit vague on this one, I guess, for the because Dungeons & Dragons does kind of cover a very heavy, wide variety of things. There's so much stuff that can be considered within the realm of Dungeons & Dragons, especially where, like, I think it's not unreasonable to say that we won't just talk about Dungeons & Dragons. We probably will also touch on just other tabletop role-playing systems as a whole. Yeah, tabletop RPGs, but more of the focus on Dungeons & Dragons, yes. that's the more easily accessible one the other ones kind of get into realms of more depth and yeah complicity so i for today want to talk about kind of how different boons and banes curses and blessings are kind of handled in dnd uh, and how your dm should handle them and how you as a player should handle them and vice versa if you are a dm how you should handle them and how your players should handle them what do you guys want to talk about i would like to talk about as the individual in this group who has the least amount of Dungeons and Dragons experience. The, I guess, experimental campaign we did at one point where we took turns DMing, giving different players chances at trying their hand at playing the role of Dungeon Master. Cue PTSD memory right now. Just like let that roll in my head for a little second and then we'll just move on past that. And just imagine the worst nerve-wracking thing in your mind and that's probably what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And that can also lean heavily into how DMs handle giving their players boons. True. There were more than a couple boons in that campaign. <laughs> and if then... you can... Uh, uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a generous term for them. <laughs> <laughs> and then what I was going to talk about is kind of just... Uh, tabletop games in general and where they are now uh, definitely they did become more popular than what they were in the past and uh, just some of the attributes of what has led to that all right well i think from that perspective it kind of makes sense if we start with your topic keith because for people who aren't as familiar with D&D and tabletop role-playing that'll probably give them the best view into what the game's all about if we talk about how it's kind of spread as a whole. Uh, so yeah, uh, going on about uh, Dungeons Dragons as it is right now, uh, it is a very old series. It goes back to uh, the 1970s. First edition where things were a bit different. Uh, one of my most favorite notable things about it is the fact that there was no archer class. It was elf. If you yeah. wanted to be an archer, you had to play an elf. Yeah, there were... In the original Dungeons Dragons as it first came out, there were three classes. There was fighting man, there was magic user... And there was, oh, what was the third one? Cleric. There was Cleric. Yeah. There's Magic User, Fighting Man, and Cleric. Those were the classes, and then there were some races you could use inside that. Yeah. The other funny thing, too, is that Dungeons & Dragons originally didn't even have a combat system in it. Nope. It was, everything else was in it, and then in the rule book was like, if you want to fight, here's another system you should take a look at and incorporate yeah. that, and then they just combine them eventually. There's, there's another game you should buy if you want to fight, because that game has all of the rules that we're going to use for combat here. We're not going to bother reprinting out the rules, just like, buy this other game and use it for combat. Otherwise, feel free to play Fighting Man and do trade. Yeah. Uh, hello, I am Fighting Man, I will buy all of your sheep for this gold. Quick, you're being robbed. <laughs> well, I normally would fight you off, but I can't because I didn't buy the expansion pack. Here, have my gold. <laughs> And then, of course, there's got been quite a few uh, iterations, each kind of just building onto it the last, getting more diversity. And, of course, what ended up happening with that is it does make the game more complicated. And that's what kind of leads me to my point here that 
fifth uh, edition, the most recent one, I feel is partially responsible for the popularity that Dungeons and Dragons and all tabletop games are experiencing right now as well. Because fifth edition really took it back back to its base, and there are a lot of people that complain that it's too simple and all that. But I feel like the fact that you know almost everyone's got a Dungeon Dragons podcast, uh, you can find loads and loads of homebrew stuff on the internet. Even Dungeon Dragons uh, Wizard of the Coast owner uh, highly support all this as well. Dragon, yeah. Dungeon Dragons Beyond and all that stuff. And I mean, case in point about how popular Dungeons and Dragons has become. Literally, I dare anyone in the audience to go onto the internet and Google Dungeons and Dragons. 5e and then just type in a word for like a thing you could theoretically be someone has already figured out how to do it and how to fit it into dungeons and dragons i can play a washing machine that summons pasta and controls it with their mind and fight a unicorn that can only sing in swedish here i'm gonna google that real quick and that's absolutely gonna be a thing i can find i promise you no you don't have to google it we already know it's there true and it's not just dungeons and dragons that's benefit from this as well i Almost all of the pen and paper games have taken off with this. Uh, yeah, they've uh, had a big resurgence as of late. Yeah, like I'm personally a fan of also the uh, Fate system. Yeah. Uh, as well as Powered by the Apocalypse is always fun. Yeah. Uh, and then if you're really getting into some of the more mental stuff, Call of Cthulhu is always a good fun one. That's a little bit more complicated to get into, though. <laughs> I do really like Call of Cthulhu, though. It's a really fun system if you can manage to sit down and figure it out. Once you start playing, it's just a fantastic way to play the game. Yeah, and... Of course, there were other factors, too, in Dungeons and Dragons not getting as popular as uh, there was, you know, the satanic panic caused by early Dungeons and Dragons. You know, kids hanging out in a basement, <laughs> dressing up as wizards. is something to worry about. summon demons. I promise you, if you're the least bit concerned about Dungeons and Dragons, no one has ever played Dungeons and Dragons and figured out how to summon a demon in real life. I, at all. I mean, really, if you want to get into it, early Dungeons and Dragons was just a bunch of kids sitting in a basement doing math really intently. Yeah. That's what it was. Just intense be, math. Be happy if you have a friend who starts playing Dungeons & Dragons. They're just essentially doing math homework for fun. That's what they're for doing those. now. They're going to attack them, going to fold all these dice, roll them, add them together, but there's a modifier. I know that if I go to attack, I have a 66.75% chance of hitting me because I'm rolling this dice, and that's good for me. It has become very popular with people realizing that, you know, it's just a game just like any other uh, and it is definitely one of the like very popular things you can find today. I'm sure most people that are aware of Dungeons and Dragons are also aware of a podcast called Critical Role, and that recently got the most backed Kickstarter of all time for their animated series based off the game that they're playing. Yeah, it's uh, pretty easy to monetize Dungeons and Dragons these days, yeah. especially since you don't have to be a fan of tabletop games to enjoy the stories and the worlds made by Dungeons and Dragons. There's plenty of fantasy book series out there in set in the worlds told in the uh, worlds set out by the Wizards of the Coast. It has literally something for everything, or something for everyone. Like, if you just really want to roleplay and you don't care about any of the math or any of the actions or anything like that, you can do that through Dungeons & Dragons. If you don't care at all about how you roleplay a character and you just want to fight and you want to squash a goblin's little head... You can do that. Murder Hobo Campaign. Murder Hobo Campaign. If you've just got a creative itch and you're bad at creative writing, like I am, you can be a DM and like play off of your players in order to build a world around you. And it scratches that creative itch so well. You're just like, sweet, now I'm doing something creative without actually having to like put in the work into writing or drawing or painting or something like that. Oh, definitely. And for example, I, I like to write as well. And one thing I've always struggled with myself is character dialogue. Characters talking, shudder. 
Don't have to worry about writing that out when you have other physical people talking to each other in the campaign. Keith, is this why you're always taking notes while the player characters are talking to each other? Uh, no, but definitely don't read any books that I might put out. <laughs> uh, and on top of that, too, to the point of how accessible it is, you can find most of the basic rules online. Wizards of Coast has been very... Uh, generous with players using their content really as long as you don't actively use any of their i believe their written campaigns or even their rule sets uh, actively as your own so try to publish something to make a profit off it if you're just using their rules to tell a story in a campaign they're all for it they support it yeah uh, in yeah. fact i believe they're a sponsor for the aforementioned critical role as well which is a big franchise built off of running a DD campaign yeah. Yeah. yeah you can even buy books published by the wizards of the coast that are their campaigns that you can yeah. play through whenever you want with your friends. Yeah, like literally on the table in front of us as we record this podcast, there are eight books all geared towards Dungeons and & Dragons and one of them is literally the campaign setting from the Critical Role podcast that they're fully on board with them selling to make money. Like Wizards of the Coast, they're the coolest. Yeah, and I believe... Even uh, in their old magazines, too, you could submit your campaigns into them, and they put them in the book so other people could play through it. Yeah, absolutely. That was, like, a super cool thing about it back in the day. It was just, like, me and my friends, like, screwed around, made a little story, played through it. We had a huge amount of fun, so we sent it to Wizards of the Coast so they could put it in one of their Unearthed Arcana things so that other people can also play through this story. Yeah, and that's been the core of Dungeons & Dragons as a whole, and most pen and paper is the collaboration to create something that normally wouldn't otherwise. Uh, Wizards of the Coast does put in a lot of books, but there's situations that, hell, we've been in in campaigns that definitely we wouldn't expect to show up in a Wizards of the Coast like module, right? For instance, one thing that like you would never expect to be an encouraged part of a campaign, but it happened and it was beautiful, was I remember one time we were playing through a scenario and there was a wizard's tower that we had to deal with. And we had our druid wild shape into a bird, fly at the wizard's tower at top speed, and then wild shape into an earth elemental and knock the tower the heck down. It was beautiful, and never would it have happened, like, as written in anything. Like, no one would ever write that story to happen, but it works out perfectly, and it's the kind of thing that comes up when playing D&D, is you come up with creative solutions to ridiculous problems. Oh, definitely. Especially if the players have no idea the puzzle you set up. So if they're in a certain mindset going into a puzzle, they're going to solve it based on that mindset, and not like, oh, man, they're going to do this, and they're going to figure this out, and then they're going to use this to solve this one. It's, no, they're probably going to, you know, Mr. Magoo their way through your dungeon, oh, pick up the item they possibly need, but if they didn't, they're going to break down the final door anyways. Oh, that reminds me so much of... So two different scenarios that I want to talk about. First one was uh, we were doing a campaign recently hosted by... Or it's the campaign Matt brought up earlier, where we each took turns DMing. Yep. And we had a slightly lower player turnout for one of the sessions, so rather than doing one of our regular ones where we played through an actual story, Keith created a puzzle dungeon that we were all teleported into, and if we got through the end, would end up winning and getting lots of special treasures. And a and fun tip to all of you people playing uh, Dungeons & Dragons... If you're ever in this situation, it's always good to have stuff created that you ha don't have a plan on using for a situation like this. I had a bunch of puzzles that I just couldn't find a dungeon for, so when the moment spreads, I was like, hey, guess what? Puzzle dungeon. Here they are. And so it was five rooms, and I think your plan was probably for it to take us, like, maybe two hours to do, like, the whole dungeon. And we spent maybe three hours on the first room, and I don't like to push blame onto other people, but, like, I left to order a pizza and came back, and we were working on a puzzle, and I was like, oh... Clearly we've already exhausted the obvious solutions. Let's start working on some non-obvious solutions. 
Three hours later. Let's go back to those obvious solutions. One of them was it? Fucking of course it was. <laughs> oh, God. It was bad but so great. Because you clearly had a plan of, like, here's a relatively simple puzzle. I just have a riddle, and if they solve the riddle, they win. And we tried everything other than solving the riddle. <laughs> yeah, you tried to strong arm your way through. It's like... Come on, guys, this is pretty simple. But, of course, it's always good to have uh, multiple fallbacks for Apollo 2. Because yeah. if you're making a campaign and you have a specific thing that needs to be done for them to progress story-wise, that information they need, don't make that something hard for them because you're just railroading the story. Like, you're not railroading the story. You're yeah. actively making it hard for them to do it. So, oh, they have to jump across this canyon? Well, maybe, you know, it's not going to cost a 15 uh, success roll on athletics to jump across. Maybe I'm only going to make them get a 10. That's a more reasonable thing. And it, if it's something they have to do, always make it easy but not, you know, super easy. Make it in the realm of possible for even your weakest party member. The worst thing I think you can do as a DM is have a clearly laid out story of I want this to happen I want them to go from this to this to this to this to this and then force them to do that because the moment you if you have five rooms in a row in a straight line and the moment you put your party in the first room your intention might be they're going to walk from room one to room two to room three to room four to room five the moment you put your party in room one they're like I'm not going through that door you want us to go through that door I'm going to knock down the wall walk around and go to the back of room five and enter through the back because clearly that's where I want to be, but I don't want to be in any of the three rooms between here and now. You can't get rigidly set on your story, because the moment you do, you start telling your players no. And I think, as a DM, the worst response you can have to, can I do this, is no. Yeah, it should always be something along the lines of, you can roll. <laughs> yeah, there's essentially, there's three tiers of DM in my mind. The first tier is, can I do this, no. Terrible DM. Not necessarily terrible, but you've definitely got your fallbacks. Well, it depends on what they ask. Yeah. <laughs> Can um, I fly to the moon just because I want to? You're a dwarf. No. Yeah. Second worst in my mind, actually, is a player asks to do something and you just say yes. If someone, a player's like, hey, that's a five-story building there. Can I jump up to the top and see what's going on? DM's like, ah, uh, sure. I don't care. That's not great. You gotta uh, Give me an acrobatics roll or something. Yeah, you got to give limitations to your players. But the best DMs in my mind are when a player asks to do something that it's physically possible for a player to do... And the DM gets them to roll because then you're actually, you're not making it your story and you're not making it the player's story. That in making your players roll and deciding what happens based on that, you're kind of making a story together. Because the DM's kind of more of the role of you're building this world and setting the rules and then you're just kind of policing the rules from that point on, making sure everything works the way it does well. The players go wild. And <laughs> yeah, don't try and herd cats. Build a giant cat enclosure and then unleash your cats on your enclosure and see what happens. And then put an evil necromancer in there to destroy all the cats and see how they solve it. Yeah. Because as soon as I enter that necromancer's <coughs> dungeon, if the DM says, okay, the path opens in front of you, and the party starts moving down the path, and I say, well, I want to check out the side cave. I saw something shiny down there. And the DM says, no, I'm done playing. Yes, but also, on that same note, if you're a player, try not to be that player. If... You're put into a room with a giant open path in front of you, and all of your party members are like, cool, let's walk down the path. Try not to be the party member who's like, let's not walk down the path. Let's walk backwards. Let's moonwalk out of this dungeon and find a bar. Oh, yeah, no, I, I guess... Because then that one player derails the entire campaign for everyone else. No, my issue is the player that does that, but doesn't tell the party they're doing that, so they walk off on their own and then complain when they die. Yeah. Still, never... Don't give the players an option to do something that they want to do. Oh, definitely. And, like, every... It depends on the party, too. For example, I've been in some parties where we were perfectly fine with it being a very railroaded, narrative-heavy storyline where 
we didn't have you know an insane effect on the world itself as players but we were making active plots within the story so it was like a, a civil war between two uh, countries and it was a short one-off and we weren't going to go traveling around the world finding magical items and just wreaking havoc we were, we were active soldiers within this military so we were kind of railroaded but that was something we all agreed on going in. But also, you're railroaded in a way that it makes sense for the characters to be railroaded, not the players. Yeah. It's completely different if it's the players being railroaded and the characters are given all the freedom in the world, but the players have to control the characters in a specific oh, way. Oh, of course. And definitely, we could have royally screwed the campaign by saying, yeah, we're not going to battle. We're going to go fuck off over there with a boat and uh, dessert. But at the same <laughs> time, as a DM, actually like have a conversation with your players as you're playing. And if... You have intended a story where you're playing a civil war and your players are the last bastion of hope for the good side. And then they say, you know what, we're just going to fuck off. Like, listen to them. If that's what your players want to do, find a way to make that into the story. Make it not a story about a big civil war where they're the last bastion of civilization. Make them a, a story about them being deserters, them seeing the consequences of them abandoning their hometown to the wolves. Yeah. Like, immediately, and then them... immediately they're hunted by the army that they desert. So they have to try to avoid them. And then whatever bad thing that was coming that they were being sent originally to stop happens. And then they're like, oh, we avoided that. Now we have to deal with the consequences. Yeah, instead of fighting an army with an army alongside you, you're now fighting an army that just rules the world and there's no one to oppose except for you anymore. And, and by the way, that is always a fun thing to do with your party members too. <clears throat> if you're DMing, Having their choice come back to bite them in the ass some way oh, that yeah. becomes a plot point makes them feel like they're actually having an impact in the world. So say they like, you know, they screw over a merchant in the first town, like they undercut him or they, you know, uh, strong arm him into giving up items for free. Maybe he hires like a mercenary down the line that are actively hunting you now because of that. And it's like, this is for that merchant you told us fuck off in uh, the first town you were in and now we're going to get revenge on you by murdering you all. Yeah, I uh, had a fun moment when I was DMing, not my current campaign, but my last one. Uh, the party came across uh, the, like, home cave of a young dragon. And, like, I had set it up in such a way that a young dragon was definitely a thing they could fight at this point. They could fight and defeat this dragon. They come across the cave of the young dragon. They see it sitting on top of a hoard of gold. So they're like, let's not fight the dragon. Let's, like, do some illusion magic, get the dragon to fly off, and then we'll steal all this treasure and return to our home base, and we'll have all this treasure. And so that's exactly what they do. They get the dragon to fly off, and then they steal all the treasure. Except as they're heading back towards their home base, which is inside of a town, they see that the town is just destroyed by what looks like a dragon. Looks like a dragon wiped out their town. And so they go back there, and none of the shops that they've been interacting with are still standing or anything like that, because they saw a young dragon that they could have defeated, and then just sent it off to kill their friends instead. <laughs> yeah, that's the trick to DMing is you gotta strike a balance between having a story with consequences, but also you gotta listen to what your players want and allow them to live in the world that they want to live in. Yeah. Because if the players aren't having fun playing, they're not gonna keep playing and then your campaign's gonna end. Yeah, and you don't want to fall into the trap of, if you're the DM or the player thinking that everything that's gonna happen to be created is the responsibility of the DM. It's a back and forth. Yeah. Uh, the players are making decisions that are affecting the world and the DM is reacting to that and making it fly back at them essentially yeah all right matt do you want to yeah. talk about our shared dming campaign and i'll use that as a jumping off point to talk about boons yeah i feel like yes. we've kind of gone into this a little bit so this is just okay. a, i guess we're moving more into the in-depth of fun yeah. stories yeah personally i always wanted to try dming i love the thought of creating a world and expanding on it and letting people experience what i want them to experience not shoehorn them into obviously yeah 
a specific route. Yeah. Um, but I never knew how to start. I'm not terribly familiar with all of the mechanics of the game, so it seemed rather daunting. So we started up this campaign where uh, it was you. Yes, yeah, it was Keith here who uh, set up the world, made the uh, groundwork, drew up the map, gave us our starting kingdom or our town, and initiated the campaign. And was, okay, so we have our base of operations. We have a guild we're working for, and these are our characters. This is our party. We can go from here. Yeah, it gives the, the safe workout too, where we were taking turns DMing. And the guild hall had exactly us in it. The trick that we used was, oh, well, whoever's doing the DMing for that session is the person who stays behind to watch the guild hall while the rest of the party goes out. Yeah. Yeah. Or in, like, a couple of special cases, the person who's DMing is also the character who got kidnapped from the guild hall while <laughs> everyone was asleep. Or is off doing other things, setting up for some other future plot points. Is off yep. just, like, at the brothel, because there were a couple characters in that campaign who were a little bit too fond of the brothel. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been VIP members. <laughs> Might have been VIP members. Might have had their picture on the wall. Yeah. But yeah, so it gets around to my point to, or, yeah, my point to uh, start trying DMing. I had set up this little campaign that I was excited to try out based off of some old uh, Skyrim mod. <laughs> Good old Skyrim mods. Yeah. Uh, it involved a little bit of time travel and uh, the potential of dying and reverting back to a previous moment in time to retry your efforts yeah classic live die repeat edge of tomorrow game of or not game of thrones groundhog day you know that kind of plot line yeah if you die you start the day over again and you have the same knowledge you had the day before summing things up really quick uh it went absolutely atrocious it was, I, it was a grand time all in all but uh nothing went the way i wanted to quick question for you matt yes so in the storyline where you had to build up where if we fucked up the day would start over and we would do it all over again. Yep. How many times did we go through that same day? Uh, just the once. No, never actually did reset we did, the we day. never reset it. <laughs> oh. So, uh... I am sorry about that, by the way. Oh, it is. <laughs> oh, there were so many points. Quite all right. And it was a great learning experience for me. I learned so many ways I could improve that campaign. And I would like to revisit it. Oh, definitely. That was definitely one of the like really interesting ones we did. And doing like just a one-shot campaign that's just that could yeah. be really cool. And I had planned out several different paths that the campaign could have went. And there could have even been a beholder allying <laughs> with you temporarily for a single... Nope. Yeah, that nope. didn't happen. Didn't happen at all. Because the one lawful good cleric was the one who stumbled across the Beholder all by himself. I So I have two moments that I loved from that thing. Uh, both of them actually involving you. <laughs> the first one was you casting Enlarge on yourself three times and then leaping across the city. <laughs> yeah, we were, a little, single bound. we were a little loose with the rules during this one. Yeah, And, and then there was a uh, Lich casting Power Word Death at you and... You rolling oh. really well, so a fly just happened to fly in between you two while he was pointing at you. I avenged that fly, though. <laughs> oh, you did. Oh, my God. You overcame that uh, constitution roll that was keeping you down, and you just decked the lich. <laughs> oh, God. You, the sad thing is, I don't think we even solved the puzzle. I think no, we just managed to find the lich and killed it. Yeah, we found the lich purely by chance and killed it. Yeah, even, even the god that I had that sent you there was like, oh, Okay, yeah, that works, I guess. Because yeah, I think, I might be wrong, but I think one of the possibilities was, because at the end, when we went to the future, 
there was clearly effects of what we had. And I'm guessing one of them was we could have saved that city and it would have thrived into the future. Yes. That didn't happen. No, no, no it was no. still ruins. But there was a giant imprint of me in the ground. Yep. Oh, goodness. We did not save that city even a little bit. Not at all. But uh, I learned a lot of things about not giving too much information to the characters as soon as they enter an area because a bunch of you just immediately went to the last place I wanted you to go and kicked things off right away. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, if it's a like a mystery element for the mission or the quest that they're doing, you definitely want to give them the very little information. Yeah. Like, what is it that the townspeople would know, but what's going on? And then they have to kind of yeah, just like, dig for Give there. a description yeah. of the area, but nothing overtly leading to anything specific. Oh, of course. Give if you're a like, very general physical description, and then have them actually have to work to track down the clues that you were planning on giving yeah. them. Yeah, if you say, like, oh, it's just, a, you know, your standard farming village. There's farms all over the place. There's hands littering, uh, town, uh, houses littering the area. You can see smoke coming of the chimneys. There's a giant ominous-looking tree in the center. <laughs> so they're going to come here. Oh, I'm going to look at that tree. <laughs> yeah, there's a uh, small farming village, like 16 houses, and also a 60-story chapel in the middle of town. That's probably nothing. Ignore that and focus on those 16 there's houses. There's glowing butterflies flying around. And you see a dragon tail coming out the back. <laughs> For some reason, there's also a thundercloud. <laughs> Yeah. You don't know why you know this, but it's also the anniversary of the death of this ancient vampire lord. <laughs> Vampires! Great segue, Keith. <laughs> so, uh, a fun little recurring thing that has happened over the course of our campaigns. How many campaigns? Uh, Three I'm or gonna, four. I'm going to say two and a half has it actually happened in. Uh, Peter apparently has uh, vampiric magnetism in that anytime there's a vampire in the campaign, Peter's going to find a way to get infected by that vampire. Uh, so I want to use that to talk about curses and kind of boons and how to handle all that shenanigans. Boy, we were loose with the rules in that shared campaign when I became a vampire. Well, and you became a vampire, I became death itself. Yeah, you became the god of death. <laughs> there were, there were some other ones. Uh, I was half dragon uh, god yeah. thing. Yeah. We, we got real loose with all of the rules and it led to I'm going to say a couple issues with balance in uh, yeah, the it was, campaign. It was fun to a point but there's yeah. a reason we stopped playing the campaign yeah. before the story was over. Yeah, yeah. There, there was a point where there was no Conflict. threats or yeah. conflicts for us anymore. Because yeah. I could summon an army of death reapers. Yeah. It, and it was my second campaign that I had run where I had gained a little more experience so I had planned things out a little better. It was a Tarask fight. The Tarask is the definitive strongest creature in the entire D&D universe. It is literally considered the apocalypse brought by the gods. I had to buff it. <laughs> I had to buff its stats. Yeah, you started that scenario with a regular Tarask, and we started kicking its butt, so mid-combat you buffed the Tarask. And then you still, you just still destroyed it. Yeah. Um, I, well, if I remember correctly, my character this time had, like, freaking, what, a 42 AC? <laughs> and this was... As a rogue. <laughs> and yeah. this was even with me nerfing your character by just eliminating your helpers from coming to your assistance. Yeah. Yeah, so part of the reason for all of this broken power uh, came from the fact that with the multiple DMs, every DM wanted to get their, like, fingers in the pie of giving out powerful artifacts and powerful abilities. And so we would have... Daniel, who gave characters coins that gave them immunity to being mind-controlled, the day before I had a session all about mind-controlling you guys and turning you against each other. And it kind of broke things a little bit. It wasn't any, like, crazy changes. It was just the fact that if you are going to DM a campaign and you're going to give out boons, 
blessings or powerful artifacts, you got to be aware of how to keep it from breaking the campaign. And the trick to not breaking the campaign, which is a term a lot of people use, and a lot of people don't always use it right, because it's honestly pretty friggin' hard to actually break a campaign. The only way to break it is to make it so that it's not fun to play anymore. Yeah. And uh, for making those things that can, if you're not sure if it's going to be robusted or not, there's a bunch of resources online. You go to any Reddit page or homebrewing website and just post what you're thinking, you'll get a lot of people replying, oh, this is what's broken about it, this is what's broken about it, try switching it to this. Uh, it could be the simple difference of giving them an item at level one that gives like two plus two necrotic damage, or one that just gives like, you know, once per day you can inflict uh, d6 of necrotic damage. Yeah. Sounds not too different from each other, but it can make a world of difference. Yeah, the easiest way to keep something from breaking the campaign is to give it a cooldown. The moment something has a cooldown, it's no longer, oh, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it again, and I'm going to do it again, and that solved all my problems. It forces them to think, oh, this is a really bad situation. Should I use my thing that I only get to use once per day, or do I save it through this fight and worry about the big baddie who's behind this boss and save my special ace in the sleeve for that? So trick number one, give it a cooldown. Like, for instance... It doesn't even necessarily have to be a strict, you can only use this once per day. It could be something like giving like a level 12 character the ability to cast Power Word Death at will, but every time they cast it, they roll a D10, and if they roll lower than the number of times they've already cast it, they target themselves instead of whatever they're trying to target. <laughs> so the first time they cast it per day, they're fine. The second time they cast it, they got a 1 in 10 chance of killing themselves. Third time, a 1 in 5 chance of killing themselves, and it just becomes... More and more risky of, do I risk using this thing again? Yeah, and uh, some other ways I've seen that done is an item that, if you ever go drop to zero charges for any reason, it's it instantly destroyed, and the trick to that is every time you cast from it, you have to roll to see if, how many charges it uses. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of those. They're like, this thing has ten charges, and when you cast it, roll a D, or when you use it, roll a D4, and it expends that many charges, and then at the beginning of every morning, roll 2D4, and it regains that many charges. And another trick that, uh, not a trick, but a, a trap I see most people fall into as well, as well when it comes to items, is uh, giving out items that, on top of the, you know, not having the recharges, They'll give an item that, because it's an item, there's no negative effects on it. Yeah. Uh, one that I can think of, going back to Critical Role, I don't want to keep doing this, but there was the Boots of Haste in Campaign 1 that essentially gave the Haste spell, but no negative effect to it for the duration. So the Haste spell uh, is essentially you get another action per turn, but then when it's done, you essentially get exhaustion. But in the, this campaign, the boots didn't give exhaustion, so we got all the benefits with none of the negative, just because it was not a cast spell that was being cast. Like, uh, I was reading through one of the uh, the newer published Dungeons & Dragons books, The Ghosts of Saltmarsh, and I came across a really interesting tiny little item that I liked. <laughs> it was some sort of lucky coin, and once per day, you could use it to give yourself advantage on a some sort of saving throw. But then, your next two saving throws you had disadvantage on, you could not get rid of that. And this coin also had a little curse on it. So unless you had someone remove the curse by uh, casting and dispel magic with a DC save of like 15 or something, if you threw away the coin, it was immediately back in your possession. You could not get rid yeah, of it. Curse yeah, curse items are always fun. Yeah, curses are really fun to deal with because they're a perfect way to balance out a boon or they're just a perfect way to like punish a player character for getting a little bit too cocky. <laughs> like, if you have a player character who walks into every room, he's like, oh, nothing's gonna hurt me here. 
boom, you're cursed. Now you have a level of exhaustion that you just can't get rid of for any reason. Although, to be fair, sometimes the game and, uh, you know, R and Jesus will just correct that itself for you. For example, going back to a campaign I was in, uh, uh, was run by a friend, Thomas. I was very tanky and I had a habit of running into boss rooms yelling, crit me. And the first time I did this, I ran into the boss room. He instantly killed me. I died yeah. immediately. No saving throw. He did so much damage from the crit that I went down instantly. You were we had a pile of blood. We have repeated instances of us walking through an army of minions and you not getting hit once against them, walking into the boss room and getting critted on his first attack against Immediately you. Immediately after yelling crit me. Yeah, it's a good thing that I developed the power of being a ghost. Yeah, because you died the first time and became a ghost leaving your body and learned how to repossess your body. Oh. Now, this wasn't a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. This was uh, run on a different system by one of our friends. So there, there was a bit of wacky stuff, but yeah, uh, I was a little too cocky with my super tank. And, uh, you know, the boss has made sure to correct that. Yeah, you uh, got knocked down a peg pretty regularly. I was not worried I could face an army of grunts, but as soon as you gave someone a name, oh, they were at risk to me. Yeah. Yep. That was another campaign that you became a vampire. Yeah, that was campaign number two where I became a vampire. Uh, so, to be honest, the first time I became a vampire, I was kind of asking for it in that I was fighting in a room full of vampires and then decided to bite the vampire lord just for funsies. And so, yeah, that I'm definitely asking for it. Second time, we're on a train. We know there's a vampire outside of the train. Thomas rolls a dice, and surprise, surprise, Peter gets targeted by the vampire for being given the curse. Literally jumps through the floor, pins me to the ceiling, and starts <laughs> sucking my blood. Oh, God. Um, speaking of RNGs, though, this is not super related to D&D as a whole, but it's a dice rolling story from yesterday, which delighted me, which is... <laughs> Uh, so I work at a cafe where you roll a dice when you order certain food items. Anyways, I had a customer come in, and they were playing D&D earlier in the day. So the customer says, I want to try and summon uh, some food. And I was like, well, if you're trying to summon, roll this D20 for me, and let's see what happens. And he rolls it, and he rolls a 2. And I'm like, yeah, no, maybe you get your food, maybe you don't. What do you want? And then he orders one of the items that you have to roll the dice for. And I'm like, ah, well, we won't count that first roll. Feel free to roll again. And he rolls the dice and he rolls another two. And it's fantastic. <laughs> but nope, you're destined to roll a two. Because <laughs> if you got a 20, it would have been upgraded to something bigger, right? Yeah, you get a free upgrade and it's better food and all that fun stuff. It's just kind of funny that he just rolled two back-to-back -back twos, <laughs> yeah. making fun of the first two in the process. Yeah, sometimes it happens. Uh, I remember oh, there was a Daniel. campaign. Yeah, there was a campaign uh, where uh, another player in it, Daniel... Uh, this was, was a part of our shared campaign again. Yeah. First uh, session. I had a boss who wore a medallion that forced uh, disadvantage on all magical attacks that specifically targeted him. Uh, so you could use an AOE on him and it would still hit his normal, but if you would target him specifically, you'd get, take a disadvantage. He kept rolling 20s back to back. So, oh, roll disadvantage, roll two 20s. Okay, you hit him with a crit, and then the next turn... He critted on him, I think, three or four times. Three times in a row with disadvantage on every spell. That was six 20s in a row, in a row that he rolled. Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> yeah, that boss, uh, what, he was supposed to be a strong melee fighter, so the whole point of the resistance was he was going to, uh, well, disadvantage forced, was he was going to charge up to you because he wanted to fight close up. He didn't want anyone dealing with him from range. He didn't make it up close. Yeah, that... <laughs> Opposite of what happened, so in a recent campaign we did, uh, we all played as superheroes, Keith DM'd, and Keith gave one of the superheroes the power of luck. So he would roll a d20, and whenever he rolled a d20, he got to rotate it to the highest number adjacent to the number he had already rolled. 
So if you roll a 2, which is right next to the 20, you get to rotate it to a 20. Unless yeah. a 1 was and, right yeah. beside Unless that Unless a 1 was right beside it, in which case you rolled it to a 1 instead. Yeah. Because luck is not always good luck. Luck is sometimes bad luck. For example, the situation at the beginning of the campaign where he got fired from his work, fell down the stairs, but ended up finding a drug smuggling ring that he later took out. Yeah. I think over the course of that campaign, even though he had this feature... I saw him roll more ones naturally, not even rotating it to ones, than he rolled 20s that he got to rotate to a 20. I think my favorite moment with that power, though, is definitely when we come across the true villain of the campaign who had, what, the power to steal other people's powers? Yeah, his power was that uh, he could pretty much steal your powers from you, so he kind of negated it, and then through certain circumstances, he could take the power for himself. Yeah, so uh, he, uh, ha- he takes someone's power for mind control or... Possession or whatever. It was telekinesis. Telekinesis, okay. And uh, made the player character with the power of luck to point a gun at his own head and pull the trigger. Pulled the trigger. The gun clicked. Yeah, because he rolled a one, so the gun misfired and go off. <laughs> it wasn't even like an automatic weapon, or it wasn't even like a revolver or anything like that. This was not the kind of gun that like misfires normally. <laughs> this was an automatic pistol that misfired against his head. And so the villain was like, Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Takes his power and then kills him. Yeah, he pulls the trigger. This time, bolt fires properly and he's dead. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, in that superhero one, we used a modified version of the fate system, which if you need a system to kind of just do something that sounds weird or you can't think of how to do it, fate is beautiful for this because really it's just you. there's no feats or anything. You just make aspects, which are little bonuses to yourself, and then you roll based off that. Yeah. Oh, that campaign was super fun, though. It was... It was kind of the genesis of the stupid die, which is my favorite thing to do in any campaign now. Uh, It's a thing I've invented as a player, which is I will have ideas sometimes that are real dumb. Like the dumbest idea you could possibly have as a player. Like there's a vampire over there. I'm going to go punch him right in the mouth. That kind of dumb idea. And originally, before I invented the stupid die, I would have a dumb idea and I'd be like, no, that's dumb. I'm not going to do it. Since inventing the stupid die, I have a bad idea. And I think, on a scale of 1 to 20, how bad of an idea is this? Is it like a 16 and it's not that bad of an idea? Or is it a 2 and it's a terrible idea? And once I come up with a number, I roll a d20. And if I roll lower than how stupid it is, I go do that stupid idea. Because progressing the story with content is better than just waiting around for stuff to happen. uh, There's a few other players that have witnessed the stupid die that I've seen implement it themselves. Uh, For example, uh, another friend who's played quite a few campaigns with Kyle rolls it in a way that he rolls to see if his character is smart enough to know what's going on. So he's playing a, a character that's not that intelligent about the world and all that stuff, so he's like, oh, stupid die, let's roll to see if I understand what's going on. Yeah, I'm smart <laughs> enough to realize what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> Other things that were just delightful from that campaign, though, my character using the stupid die to his own advantage, where... He became dumb enough that other characters knew him, like other NPCs knew him as the dumb superhero. (laughs) So when someone tried to impersonate me and they made very sound tactical decisions, they're like, no, that can't be him. That's too smart of a guy to be (laughs) our guy. Um, That was amazing. You were pulled into some office and they're like, you actually believe this is me and that's an imposter? And they just look at you seriously. I'm like... He wasn't announcing his every move over a megaphone. Did you hear a megaphone? (laughs) Oh, boy. The benefit of having a character that has, like, super intelligence that wanted to help you guys. Yeah. (laughs) Although, to be fair, more people probably should have figured that out. Even the player characters didn't clue in until they said that. Yeah. Like, also, during that campaign, 
me finding out that my adoptive daughter has been kidnapped by the military government because they're now trying to round up superheroes. And she was supposed to be in school. She was in school at the time. So me, in the middle of a meeting with other superheroes where we're discussing how to take down the big final boss, I had to stand up, turn around, and like, I gotta go pick up my daughter from school. And everyone's like, what? Like, I gotta go pick up my daughter from school. And I just fly out to steal her out of the military base. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of good moments and. Sometimes the players doing something you don't expect also makes for the best situations. Uh, I try to make as many NPC characters as I can to help out in situations, uh, but sometimes you guys will go through them so fast that I have to make up some on the spot. And one such example was in uh, the first campaign I did with you guys, where uh, there was a battle going on, and our friend Thomas, who was playing kind of like a military general in this one, needed to hire some spies to go behind enemy lines. Oh, Twig Man. Yeah, and I rolled a bunch oh. of things, and... I rolled a really bad one. It was like a really bad character off the bat. And I was like, uh, yeah, it's just some uh, dumb guy holding a stick. And he's like, okay, I want you to go off in that direction and bring back the enemy leader's head. Obviously meaning uh, the enemy leader of uh, the military force that was camped inside his castle. No, I rolled a nat 20 on this guy. And then I was like, oh, okay, so he sneaks through the enemy lines, fine. I roll another nat 20. Like, oh, and I rolled. <laughs> I'm kidding not. Four to five nat 20s in a row. And it's like... He comes back with that guy's leader's head. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just became like this haunting joke for Thomas's character as we went through the campaign of he was so he seemed so stupid, but something seemed off about him. It's like he's doing all this perfectly how. I love how my introduction to that campaign, because I didn't join at the beginning, I joined partway through. And my introduction was I was a kid who was, like, escaping from his, like, home village, and I came across a battlefield and saw a whole bunch of people fighting, and just one guy running through the battlefield holding a twig in front of himself. <laughs> and not, not getting hit by anything. No. Not even being noticed by any of the people around him. Yeah. Well, after all those 20s, I was like, oh, I should probably make some stats for this guy because he's coming back, obviously. Yeah. So, other fun things to do as DMs. I've been reading a lot of, or not reading, I've been watching a lot of kind of D&D podcasts. Not like where people play D&D, but where people talk about D&D. Kind of narrowed down some cool ideas that I think I'm going to start using. One is uh, you get all of your player characters to write just miscellaneous encounters that can happen on the road. And you get them to write down one that would be good for the player characters and one that would be bad for the player characters. And then you take their options, you double check to make sure they're not doing anything. Like a god comes down and gives me all of his godly power. And you make sure nothing's like too bad or too good. And then you put them all on a hat, and then whenever there's downtime and you don't know exactly how to fill the time, just draw something out of the hat and be like, all right, cool, you guys are being raided by goblins. Or you come across a traveling merchant with some mysterious wares. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing about like all the homebrew stuff you can find online. You can find random generator charts for everything that, honestly, as long as you're good at uh, improving and come up with things on the fly, you don't have to build anything for your campaign. If the party just wants to randomly adventure, murder hoboing or whatever, you just randomly roll everything before the campaign it's like, okay, this is the process we're using, and then go from there. On that note, I think the greatest skill that a DM can have is the ability to improvise. Yeah. You, if a player says something that you're not prepared for, and you just riff off of it, and you're like, oh, yeah, you th that guy over there with the beard? Yeah, he's a dwarven uh, blacksmith. Yeah, he's got some pretty, like, nice-looking sharp swords over there, and you just kind of take this random comment that someone wanted to ask questions about and actually turn it into something... It's fantastic, and it builds the immersion so much better than them being like, who's that guy over there with the beard? And you're like, I don't, I don't know. I didn't plan on you asking about the guy with the beard. Ignore the guy with the beard. There's no guy with a beard. And the other thing about that, too, is uh, say you've created an NPC that you feel like is going to be important for the storyline. Well, they bonded with this character, and you can kind of make them fit the same role, 
then just give the plot points you were going to give to that character to this new character the character's already just naturally bonding with. Because yeah. that feels so much better than them having to be forced a relationship with another character to get a plot point across. Yeah, because yeah. like you could uh, build up this incredible blacksmith who has a nice, solid connection to some, I don't know, some NPC that you need to get in contact with at some point. And you could be describing the town that they're walking through and describe this smithy. And uh, kind of lean towards it's an interesting place that they might want to check out, but they might not have any interest in that smithy whatsoever. Yeah, as we've said before, trying to get your players to go to a specific location is trying to get <laughs> cats to walk in a specific line. You describe the smithy in complete perfect detail and make it sound super interesting, and your player characters might just be in the mindset, I'm happy with the armor I have right now. I'd much rather find like a magic shop and see if they have any potions that I can buy. Yeah. And then your smithy's useless to you now. Yeah, so have a bunch of things going on, a bunch of rumors circulating through the town that they can eavesdrop here and uh, maybe act on those. Yeah, and the, the big things I always work with, too, is have ideas and not so much set-in-stone concepts. You can make an NPC that's going to fit a plot for the plot, uh, point for the plot, but if something happens that they don't encounter that NPC or they just decide to spend more time with the other one, have like their background, you can easily mix and match stuff. I have a bunch of NPCs that I have written up in my giant DM tome, which I have, which is just full of a bunch of paper and notes I've made, where I've made NPCs that have no intention of putting any words in the story. But if something comes up where I need to make one on the fly that needs to fill a important goal, or I need you know the party to be saved by a random passing by adventurer, I can just pull one out of the sheet. It's like, oh, I got this ranger uh, druid that was passing by, and I have all the stats and equipment already set up. So, oh, he just happened to pass by and it's saving you. Yeah. Or maybe the party's really injured and then they have passing by cleric that I have written up. It's You have no idea until you're in the moment of how helpful it is to just have random assets prepared for nothing. Don't have any intention to use them, just have them prepared. There's inevitably going to be one person in your party who passes by a nameless NPC and wants to have a three-hour conversation with them about joining their orphanage to help out with all the little kids. And it's just like, you you got to be prepared for the inevitable kind of player who wants to bite down on something that you're not prepared for them to bite down on. So just having random assets that you have no intention of using gives you a pool of stuff to draw from to use in your moment without having to plan out, oh, I know... Matt's a part of this campaign. I have to be prepared for Matt to talk about his orphanage to the random NPC. Yeah. And not, I, not you, Matt. Different Matt. <laughs> and uh, another thing, for example, when I'm DMing, the things I always make sure to have with me, at the very least, you want a name of just, like, a list of just names because it's so easy just to draw from a list of names and scratch them off as you go through. I also like to have it with me at all times just random shop inventories. Yeah. So just, like, have some cue cards with, like, just, uh, like, oh, five health potions, like, so that if they ever walk into a shop... No matter where they're at, always account on them possibly finding a shop or a merchant. I can just pull from this like, oh, this is what they have. Uh, on top of that, another good thing to have is just rough dr like drafts of just small dungeons. Yeah. So maybe like a, you know a three level seven room dungeon, and you don't even have to put the monsters in it. Just put okay, oh, hey, this is where an important thing will be, an important treasure. There'll be three or four uh, enemies in this room, and then based on where they're at, you can say they oh I want to go explore you know that swamp over there. Well, I wasn't planning on you guys to go into the swamp. I thought you guys were going to go to the castle over there. So I can easily pull out this small dungeon, and then, boom, there was something there when you guys went there. You didn't feel like you just wasted your time. It's like, oh, this world is immersive. There's stuff everywhere. And that encourages the players to look a bit closer at everything, too, because anything can happen. Yeah, like, for instance, right now I'm running 
a pirate campaign in a world that I just kind of randomly made and it's just full of different aspects. And I spent so much time just like every island I drew on the map, I created a whole story of what that island is and like what kind of stuff's going on and just like a hint of a conflict that's going on on that island. Like one of them, there's an iron mine island that's the source of all of the iron in the world. And a conflict is that the iron production has recently gone down or production in iron and how much they've been mining has gone down recently. So when they get there, if they choose to go to the Iron Mine Island, I'll just build off of that and build the story there. I don't have to be like, all right, you guys are going to the Iron Islands because I created a plan for you to go to the Iron <laughs> Islands. Like, no, I have a plan if you choose to go to the Iron Islands, but also you don't have to go to the Iron Islands. Exactly. And the way, uh, the way I look at it is, think of it uh, in like a simple term of the rendering distance of something. Yeah. If they're not near the town, you don't need every specific detail of what's going on there, who's the important players in the conflict. Just have an idea of what that town's for. So, yeah. oh, uh, I have a small town at the base of the mountains. Okay, they're probably going to do a lot of mining, so there's not going to be a lot of greenery there. Uh, maybe the people there are a bit colder to outsiders. Or, oh, maybe this town's on the boundary between a desert and uh, a valley. So they have to deal with, like, harsh things. So the people there are stronger. They might be a bit more friendly than we expect because a lot of travelers come through here, but they are tough people. They're hard to fight. Those are vague ideas that if they go close to the city, then you start adding in more details with yeah. the idea, like, oh, they're getting close to the city. Maybe there's going to be a conflict that's going to be there. So you can, based on the vicinity of the location to your party, you can slowly just add more details as they get closer to it to allow for that. Like, for instance, one, <clears throat> one podcast I was listening to the way they talked about this, they gave a really great analogy, which is when you're building your world, don't worry about every single blade of grass in the world. Treat it like you're drawing a map from a really zoned out perspective. You don't need to plan out exactly what route the road is going to follow, but if you throw in a city here and you know kind of what that city's purpose is, and you throw in a city here and you know what that city's purpose is, then you know there's going to be a road connecting them, and you can think about, well, if this city's a kind of iron mining city and this city's full of like great craftsmen, then probably going to be a well-traveled road full of shipments of iron going from the one city to the other. It's going to be a lot of travel between these two, and you don't have to worry about knowing what that road is. So long as you know all the details around it, you can kind of build, well, there's a big dense forest to the south. Maybe there's some wild creatures that live inside the forest that sometimes harass the people on the road. You don't have to plan out every single detail. If you have the major details, it's very easy to kind of construct based on what you already have. Yeah. Well, and of course, you can also theme towns, too, because another big one that uh, a lot of people like to use in their campaigns, oh, it's a magic city. So it's like, oh, that's where the magic city is, and just yes. leave it at that. Yeah. Like, if you want to go learn about magic, yeah, most towns have magic shops, but there's also Magic City! <laughs> Alec Magic! Ha <laughs> yeah. like, I recently bought the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide and started going through that because I want to start my own campaign. And one of the things they said for world building is there's two main ways that you can go about it. One, is like Peter said, have a general map, a giant map, just general of where you want things to be put things down, and then just kind of fill things out in between as you go. Or you can uh, start out small in a, just a centralized, like a small town, and have that nicely fully developed, and then just build out from there. So one thing that's really great for starting with like a small town, playing with your characters for a couple of sessions, and then building from there, is don't even start, like people like to start their campaign in like a big city so that you can have a little bit of everything. But a big city has like a hundred people in it, and that's way too much to actually do in fine detail early on. I like to start with like a village with like 20 people, or like a hamlet with like a dozen people. My favorite thing is I was looking up resources on this, and there's something below hamlet, and it's a thorpe, and it's one to six people. Which means if a guy has a shack in the woods, and you come across his shack while adventuring through the woods, but he can legitimately be like, welcome to my thorpe! 
Our population has quadrupled since you got here. (laughs) (laughs) And that's another thing, like, uh, starting a campaign is always one of the most difficult things, because even though everyone playing kind of knows each other, if you're playing your character, there's always that issue of introducing each other, and everyone, no matter how many times you go through it, find it so awkward to do. I personally like starting it where they already know each other. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So having it start mid-action uh, or something. Say they're in a battle. Like, oh, they've been traveling for a while and they're attacked by goblins. That's where the campaign starts. Not with them talking, sitting down, having an ale in a tavern with this creepy guy with a beard and a hood over in the corner looking at them side-eyed. No, they're getting yeah. attacked by goblins and they have to spring to action right there. It starts it right off the bat with the action. They can interact in a way that they think they would. Or, even if you want to have that tavern start, maybe they're starting in a tavern... They've known each other for a month now. They've been traveling around, and they're actually here celebrating their most recent 60-day quest. While I hate railroading players and, like, taking decisions away from them, I find a great way to kind of introduce players to your world is to have them already be hired by someone to do a quest. You've been hired by this lord to clear the goblins out of their mine. That gives you a direction for the beginning, and then while you're in the mine, you can figure out what it is you want to do in this world, and you can learn some more about the world while you're there. Exactly. Like uh, the campaign that I'm planning now... It'll be the first campaign that I actually DM completely myself, and the way it's kind of developed is kind of railroaded, just a little bit. And it all started off with just one idea I came up with, the idea of a village out in sea founded by pirates, and that just developed into not a pirate community, but a uh, kind of a community on some isolated sandbar in the middle of some uh, seafaring or... Uh, shipping lane just full of structures made from these pirates ships and it's developed into a free trade port which uh when i recently started to think back on it i realized it shares a lot of connections with a city already in a different kind of fantasy setting guild wars 2 called <laughs> called lion's arch and the more i thought about that the more and more parallels i saw between what i came up with and that but aside from that once i came up with that city i decided okay how can I use that? A sea campaign? Okay, how do I get a bunch of people on a boat? Well, they could be uh, recruited for uh, pirate hunting by some king. Some king's uh, royal ship for pirate hunting. Okay, why are they on the boat? I don't know. They could have a bunch of different reasons. A player character could be a criminal serving uh, community service or something. Aspiring adventurer who wants to come on to the ship to try his fame and fortune out on the open sea. For that kind of stuff, I love having one-on-one sit-downs with your players and being like, here's the world I've built, here's the loose details, I want you guys to start out on a ship, what kind of character are you planning on building, work with me together here to figure out why you're on a ship, because if you have that kind of one-on-one talk, it gets the players invested in their character, and getting them invested in their character gets them invested in the story and the world. Yeah, and this story I think would be a good starting point for me, because they're starting on a ship with a particular goal, It's streamlined and on rails at the beginning because they're under the command of a captain. So it's good for me for getting experience as a DM. But then as they get out into the sea, out and exploring, then there'll be other options to open up, other paths to choose. Of course, that's such a good way to get players uh, used to the universe too. I like having, more often than not, the first quest being a very specific mission that they're kind of thrust into. Kind Mm -hmm. of put the setting of, oh, there's something big going on here. And setting down with the character is also really good for establishing stuff, especially if it's a big campaign that you have a story written out that you want to go for a while. Mm -hmm. Whereas with one-offs and little short things, or even campaigns that are just for exploring, I I find it's not really needed that much, because it's all about the discovery as opposed to the big story that you want them to experience. Yeah. Uh, For instance, great, like, opening question. Let's say all the players work for, like, a farmer, 
great like mm-hmm. opening because now they all already know each other and the farmer's like hiring them all to like escort his daughter to like the big community festival at Braden. And then, like, a war breaks out in Braden, and I'm talking about our current campaign, in case you haven't figured it oh, out. Oh, I was going to say, that's a really good idea. I wonder why <laughs> I should look on doing something with that. I I don't know. I really like that kind of idea of just, you don't railroad your players in the opening, but you just, you build enough of a kind of rigid introduction to get them comfortable with the world to the point where they're just like, nah, fuck what you're talking about. I want to go do this thing. You were talking a while back, when we were talking about, like, characters, that... There's an island full of pirates made out of ships. I'm going to go there and I want to burn <laughs> it to the ground because fuck pirates. You say an island made out of, pi- of, of pirates that are made out of ships? An <laughs> um, island made by pirates that are made out of... I don't... <laughs> yeah, I think that's what I said. It's definitely not what I I meant. think you just created a really new weird Warforged character. I really now want to sneak into my pirate campaign a group of pirates that aren't actual pirates. They're sentient pirate ships. <laughs> Transforming Warforged that turn into boats. One thing I've always really wanted to kind of sneak into a D&D campaign, and I talked about you guys with this before because I wanted to sneak it into our campaign where we were taking turns DMing, is heists. I love the idea of, like, giving your characters a very specific goal and then building a world and letting them figure out what's the best way to go about accomplishing this goal. Letting them take a couple days just to, like, gather enough information that they can build a plan. Building a plan and then... Letting them act through the plan and seeing how the plan breaks down at certain points and how it works out in other ways that they weren't expecting. When we did our shared campaign, because we just got so many blessings from gods and everything, and also every city we went to end up destroyed, I really wanted us to do like a second campaign after that, where we took turns playing as normal people, hunting down the god of death who had just become a monster. <laughs> hunting down this vampire lord who had opened up an inn in town and was harvesting off the people. It was a terrible thing I did. <laughs> oh, it's definitely a bunch of weird what-off stuff we've done in these campaigns. Yeah. This random drunk dragon god lord thing. Who became a woman and... Was born a man and had a curse put on him that turned him into a woman, if I no. remember correctly. Drank a potion, assuming it was some sort of alcohol that ended up being a uh, gender-swapping potion. I mean, to be fair, that's your fault for drinking an unlabeled liquid bottle. Could have been alcohol. <laughs> had to play to my character. Mike, you're cur- or Matt, you're currently drinking from an unlabeled liquid bottle. Not alcohol. <laughs> Playing his character. <laughs> <laughs> for instance, in my current campaign that I'm running, the pirate one that I've talked about a couple of times, we've got our next session two days from now. And it's going to be a prison break because they've all been captured by some members of, like, the Royal Marines who saw them. They're like, those are pirates. Let's capture them and bring them to our prison island. And so they've been captured and now they're going to have to break out of this prison ship and not go to prison. Or I guess they could go to prison and then try and break out of the actual prison island. You see, that's funny because in my campaign, the next uh, uh uh, session of it is coming up soon and the party was recently captured by an enemy army and they're gonna have to do a prison break because they've been captured or being transferred to some unknown location i forgot so about matt that. are we now updating your campaign so it starts with your group being captured by a prisoner or being captured by some jailers they have to break out of prison so that all of our campaigns are moving towards a prison break captured by pirates they're slaves they have to break out killer captors yeah and yeah. it's just it's a fun thing to do a prison break or any sort of ice because it's just it forces your players to spend an amount of time being like, all right, I got to figure out the routines of the guard so I can figure out how exactly I'm going to get out of the cell and then what I'm going to do after I get out of the cell. Oh, yeah, and it, that's, I feel it's also a good thing to do anytime you get the chance to strip the characters of everything they've earned so yeah. they have to think about a puzzle differently. 
is always a fun mm -hmm. aspect. And Prison Break uh, are always allow for that because their gear's gone now. So yeah. all these magical items, most of their casting or fighting tools, they have to now think outside the box. And yeah, they've got to actually role play their way through the situation rather than just being like, oh, uh, magic missile, he's dead, I win. <laughs> And who knows, they might uh, come up with some weird convoluted plan that uh, makes things incredibly difficult for them. Or they could come up with something that you as the DM never thought of and makes that an incredibly easy escape for them. Yeah, and Case I in point, the first DM, uh, session I DM'd when we were doing our shared DMing thing, I had tried to plan a heist into this <laughs> first one, and the first step of the heist was you guys had to collect guards' uniforms, and I had planned out this whole scenario where you would break into the guards' uh, base and, like, steal some guards' uniforms and find out some information about the guards while you're there. One of your player characters wasn't on board with the heist, so he just walked off at the beginning of, like, me trying to sit everyone down to talk about a heist, ran into some guards who were being a bunch of dicks, and literally knocked out the guards and dragged them all back to the place where you were planning a heist, not knowing about the fact that I was about to ask you to go grab some guards' uniforms for me. That was... An interesting solution to a problem he didn't know he had to solve. Oh yeah, it's always fun when you just kind of stumble your way through a puzzle by accident, or even solve something in a way that wasn't expected. Uh, for example, there's a campaign I'm in that uh, one of our friends is running as well, and in this one I went more of the intellectual character. I tend to like playing like the rogues or the healers, but I decided to go with an artificer. Uh, so I've been playing the character very intelligence-based in this one. So there was a part where we're supposed to go through the town, investigate, and find out where this missing dog went. And because of this, I went immediately into, like, detective mode. And b before we could even leave the house to go explore the town to find out what happened to the dog, I already solved what happened to the dog, kind of. I found it like there's some nefarious stuff going out on the woods and, like, some weird thing we have to deal with. So I pretty much bypassed having to explore the village. <laughs> so I'm pretty <laughs> sure I've missed a few things already for the campaign. And then later on, we're walking through the forest... Uh, we're on a cliffside and we get ambushed by some like goblins uh, off a ridge and there's a magical character with us uh, that has really destructive magic they have to they can cast once because they kind of like just overload all their spell slots and then they can cast a really strong explosion and I ended up having that character hold on to their magic through like this whole session go to this point and as soon as they go to ambush us I just go right there <laughs> and then it blows them all up <laughs> it's like yep I avoided every combat scenario this campaign session. Oh, there's some fun stuff you can do in D&D, though. Like, for instance, uh, in the pirate campaign, I already have plans for them to have combat during a storm. And so what I'm going to be doing is I'm actually just going to have a separate timer going unrelated to what's going on. So the longer they take with their turns, the faster this timer goes off. I'm hoping you just have it there in the background so that every player can see it. It's like, what's that timer for? Oh, don't worry about it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> and so the way it's going to work out is every time the timer runs out, the storm's going to act out in some way. So for instance, I'll roll a dice and it might be a giant wave hits the ship and knocks everyone prone or something. Or it might be lightning strikes the ship and I have like the thunderclap spell cast at a certain point on the sp uh, ship from lightning striking there. It's just going to be a random effect happens based on the storm happening. It's just kind of the stuff that, like, I couldn't do if I wasn't playing D&D. I couldn't be like, ah, in this video game you're now playing, lightning! I mean, I guess I could just, like, buy a taser and tase people <laughs> while they're playing video games. <laughs> Please don't. I mean, you can do that in D Dungeons & Dragons, too. There's no reason to stop a video game. Oh, that's true. Oh, we're LARPing I now. I cast it? Shocking Hands. And lightning strikes you. <laughs> and that's a, a, a fun concept, too, is uh, one of the things that can be difficult is uh, really Core Dungeon Dragons is kind of built for four players. Yeah. So going beyond four players is where things start getting a bit out of whack for the balancing of it. And 
a good trick to fixing that is you don't have to stick to the specific stats. You can add or remove features or just add cool elements to the fights. Uh, one thing to take inspiration from is legendary actions or lair actions yeah. where it's added effects. And on the, the storm, as you were saying, every so often something will happen. You don't have to rebalance the boss they're fighting. You're just adding more things into it that they have to account for, making it a more thought out thing instead of just let's hit this as hard as we can until one of us falls down. Yeah, it's just, it's fun to do stuff like that. Just take a basic idea, like a battle on a ship. Because the thing is, if you play D&D the same way every time, it can get boring real quick. If you always play a warlock and every time you're in a combat situation, you cast Eldritch Blast until the thing stops moving, that quickly stops being interesting because you don't have to be there to play that character anymore. You can go away and someone else can just be, whenever it's your turn in initiative, Eldritch Blast! That's your turn. You're done. That's That might be fun to some people, but to me, the fun part of D&D is taking different problems and solving them creatively in the moment and not having a pre-planned solution to every problem. So if it takes... If your players are solving every problem the same way as a DM, create problems that they can't solve in the way that they've been solving every other one of their problems. Force them to think about it. If you're a player who... And you realize you're stuck in a rut solving every problem in the same way, one thing I like to do, play a different character. I played magical characters for the longest time, and then I realized it's not really interesting to me anymore because every time I'm there, I'm just like, I have like one of three spells I'm going to use. It's solved. So I stopped playing magical characters <laughs> and became just a meathead who's dumb, and it's so much more fun to me right now because yeah. we'll see a giant demon, and everyone will be like, Peter, be quiet. There's a giant demon, and he's sleeping, and I'll roll a dice and be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because I've always played magic characters in uh, not just table the tabletop games that I've played, but uh, like video games and other things. The one short little campaign that we started doing, we didn't ever finish over Discord. Yeah, I decided to play a dwarven fighter, and my god, that was fun. Yeah, it's like, <clears throat> uh, confrontation starts up, things start getting a little tense, and I'm like, oh, what should I do? What should I do? Uh, I look to my spell page, see that it's empty. I'm like. Right. I just, Everything's possible. I just walk up to the uh, the guard captain in front of me, and I just headbutt him. And oh, it, that was oh, that was the funnest I've had in a fight for oh, yeah. a long time. That's one of the beautiful things about the dragons is where there's so much diversity for class, and not just that, but the subclasses within it. That if you are switching up every game you're playing to a different class, different race, it's not going to be boring because there's new things to experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even just yeah. Even if you only ever play a rogue, and you just swap between the different rogue subclasses. There's enough variety that you're going to be solving all of your problems differently. If you're the arcane trickster, you're still going to have that spell sheet and you're going to look through for the perfect spell for the situation. And you're honestly, if you're an arcane trickster, you're going to use Mage Hand for 90% of what you do because you can pickpocket people from 30 feet away with Mage Hand. And it's super Or tickle cool. people to force disadvantage. Yeah, tickle them on their special places. That's not a thing that's ever happened. Um, <laughs> not Definitely not more than once. <laughs> <laughs> but if you aren't an arcane trickster, if you're an assassin, your whole goal is going to be to get your sneak attack off. Because the moment you get your sneak attack off, 90% of the things you're attacking die. And it's just, you have all these different solutions that you're using. And even if you use the same solution 90% of the time as the character, just swap up your character and play a different type of character and you'll use a completely different solution. You have to figure out how exactly your solutions work with the new character. Yeah, and like not just in the combat, but if you're playing the same class and using different archetypes of the class, just using a different race for your character. Because then the role-playing aspect changes because different races will view your race differently. Yeah. Some may distrust you more. If you have a solid DM... 
then your race is going to have a huge impact on the campaign. You play as a lizard folk. Most people don't have experience with lizard folk outside of like ranging barbarians. So you play a lizard folk who walks into town. Most people like shut up their shops or like are really mistrustful around you. <laughs> and then when you ask questions, they just kind of silently stare at you. And then they ask what your name is. And you say you're something like, I'm hungry. Not thinking that they're asking for your name. And they're like, okay, cool. Hungry. Nice to meet you. It's fun stuff like that. And then you stop playing a lizard folk and you start playing an elf. And immediately everyone's so much more receptive to you. And like some people even think really highly of you because elves are like an elevated race of people. Which is a little bit messed up now that I say those words out loud. <laughs> shame on you, D&D, for making some races bad and some races good. Shame on you. And also shame on me, because I definitely baked that into the campaign I'm currently running. <laughs> so many bad races and so many good races. Uh, so one question i got to ask you guys, because we, we've been talking about a lot of uh, interesting moments and just campaign things. What is, like, the craziest or best moment you've had playing? Well, you guys think, but I can start <laughs> off with a good one that I have. Yes. Uh, so there's sometimes where it's good to sit down with players and discuss uh, everything about the campaign. But there are also fun situations where this was a campaign I was a player in. Uh, the DM didn't have any, like, we didn't even know who we were playing with. He just, like, said, oh, I got some people together. We're going to play Dungeons & Dragons. Meet here at this time. And so we didn't know who else we were playing with or anything like that. We show up to campaign day one. Everyone's playing a cleric. So <laughs> we're a group of seven people, all clerics. DM didn't expect this. We didn't expect this. So we literally decided when we all sat down... We didn't all worship the same god, mind you, but we decided we were going to be a roaming uh, party of holy wrath and just traveled round and round playing up like we were just like uh, a mission that was like trying to like get people to worship the Pantheon and just trying to hunt down evil wherever it went. <laughs> his, his idea for the campaign too started off with us just, you know, being in a small village, having to deal with like a small goblin population that was affecting them. There was no overtones of a demon. The final boss was actually a wizard who was trying to gain immortality. Nice. There was no, there was no, nothing about hell or heaven or any type of <laughs> demonic thing. Just we all showed up as clerics because he didn't tell us anything. It was a pure fluke, but goddamn was it funny. Yeah. So one of my favorite weirdest moments, well, not really weird, but it was super fun to play through, was first session I was playing with a new party. I like knew a lot of them from outside of D&D, but I had never actually played with any played D&D with any of them. Um, and I was DMing the group, and I decided, first scenario, they're going to be hired to clear out some goblins from a nearby town, or from a nearby like goblin hovel area. And so they go to the goblin hovel area, and immediately they see the first goblin, and like the murder hobo switch lights up in all of them, <laughs> and they all just start stabbing goblins. And I'm like, no, no, no. i got to cut this off right now. No more murder hobos. So I like go around the table and like, do any of you speak goblin? And one of them speaks goblin. And so I just start describing in detail these goblins talking about their home life and how much they love their newborn baby child and how they've been having trouble finding food for them recently. And I'm like, I'm going to make you feel so bad about what you're doing to these goblins until you decide to stop doing this to these goblins. You didn't ask any questions. You are like, oh, you want us to murder? Yeah, stab, 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 stab. And I was like, nope. This is guilt trip time. This is guilt trip. We're, you, you're not walking into any room stabbed first ever again. <laughs> there was Pojo and Tot and they were best friends and both their parents were dead. So they had to raise each other and they had found a chicken and they were like, we're going to raise this chicken and eat its eggs and this chicken will be our new friend. And then my camp party hadn't quite clued into the fact that they were murder hobos yet. So they stabbed both of them and like, we're going to raise the chicken to be our friend. And I was like, no, that's not how pets work. <laughs> I mean, that sounds exactly how pets work in Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. You killed the owner, you're the new owner. Keep what you kill. <laughs> That's the only rule I live by. <laughs> no, my favorite moment wasn't from Dungeons and Dragons. It was from the uh, homebrew system that we were using for 
one of your campaigns, Keith, the first campaign that I ever took part in. It was uh, when my character was pretended to be dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I was there for this part. You... I think were, you, were, you were there. You just newly joined. Yeah. Oh, okay. So uh, I like uh, to create my characters. I don't like to flesh out my backstory completely. I like to leave in uh, key details, but then I just let the DM do whatever they want. Yeah, for this campaign, you ended up being an artificial human that was made for this special cult that had godlike deities running things behind it. Yeah, and I, turned, I ended up being a demon lord of greed by the end of it. Yep, that sounds about right. <clears throat> but, uh, and there... This campaign expanded, er, continued on for a couple of years, and we had in the game itself a bunch of different generation gaps. Yeah, the, in this campaign, the premise was uh, you start out with characters in the first campaign of it, but there was a large overarching story that you'd have to jump and you'd end up playing descendants or older versions of your character, yeah. depending on the race. So, like, your stats, potentially, if you were able to secure descendant, would carry over. My character, because of my origin, was the same character throughout the entire thing. Until uh, one particular time gap where uh, I just make a weird comment on Facebook jokingly, ah, time to roll up a new character. <laughs> and so uh, Keith here messages me. He's like, uh, do you really want to do this? You want to fake your death? I'm like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I start into the next generation. I can only imagine the FBI agent reading that one. You want to fake your death? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Happy mask salesman, if I'm remembering that yes, correctly. Based... Completely off the heavy ma happy mask salesman. My new character, timid librarian, pretty much opposite, uh, completely personality-wise. No combat abilities whatsoever, pretty much. Just worms his way into the perfect position to uh, kill several enemies, other other players. Never acts on it. And at one point, meets up with your character Keith, who is currently in love and trying to seduce a child. Not a child. Not a child. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's stop for a second so I can retract what I just said. My character was a child and was in love with another character of the same age. We both grew up and neither one of us were children anymore because it was now after a time jump. And I was a young adult trying to seduce another young adult. Let's retract everything that was said okay. before this. So that's cleaned up. You were trying to seduce them. I made that child a promise when they were a child that I'd protect them, look after them, and if they needed any help, I'd be there for them. I disappeared. I made a reappearance, talking to her and you in private, and uh, that was when you realized, out of character, because you, your character had no idea who I was, yeah. I don't believe. We didn't have any interactions in the yeah. first generation That was of my the first time I had revealed that my character was still my old character, and so his character was completely clueless, but him as a player, he was freaked. You, you were <laughs> a little bit freaked out about completely it. Completely yeah. shocked. The best moment was uh, further on in that same generation where we're getting to a climactic battle. There's a couple demons showing up, and someone who is apparently my old character. I start climbing up some stairs to fight him. A demon transforms into a literal lava golem and starts tackling one of the characters that was my old character's friend. He's terrified because he's about to die because he's about to be tackled by a lava golem out, so out of a tower that reaches up into the clouds. And suddenly, my character's old demon sword flies over nowhere, cuts him off, like knocks the demon off course. This character's freaking out. He's like, what? Like, 
him as a player himself, he's just like, excuse me? And he just looks up the stairs to my character, and it's my old character just taking off a ring that disguised my character as a human, and I'm just back, full, like, demonic presence and everything, and he literally is speechless. This this player, who will talk to an NPC for an hour, <laughs> is speechless. Yep. That campaign was full of some pretty great moments. Like, I'm gonna say two words, and you guys are both gonna remember this moment and probably chuckle a little bit. Throw me. <laughs> so one character who had morphed with a dragon essentially and was flying at very high speeds was carrying another character because we had essentially split the party at this point. One group was working for one army and one group was working for another army. And so this character flying at dragon speeds, chasing after another group of player characters uh, and carrying a third player. Ends up like almost catching up to them. The player who's getting me in character is like, I need you to throw me at them so that we can catch up. I'll knock them off course. And the dragon character is like, yeah, sure, I guess. Throws him as hard as he can into the ground, does enough damage that he's now like beyond zero and making death saving throws. And we're like, all right, cool. That just happened, and we just leave them to their own devices. <laughs> it's a crater. It almost worked. Yeah, almost worked. Didn't, not, didn't actually work, not but almost though. worked. I mean, it probably would have put the other character if he hit them, actually. In that. But again, he was thrown from a super high level of uh, ev uh, elevation straight down into the ground. Yeah. Mm. By a character who had the strength of a dragon. <laughs> didn't think that through, but it was a beautiful moment. Mm -hmm. Especially after he realized the mistake he made when it was yep. too late. And when his unconscious corpse was being carried away by me, who was an enemy at the time, uh, I was sorely tempted to kill the Oh yeah, you completely. could have clear on him and just like ended his character. Also, I believe during this reveal too, you like uh, th that party had a specific sword that could kill immortal creatures like you were at this point. Yes. And they had given it to you to use. And yep. so when you did the reveal, you didn't give it back. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So I was, I didn't kill him because I wanted to work up their trust to take that sword back that could kill my character because I didn't want them to kill me. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up getting it and leaving. I said I was going to do some research in the library. I took it to the library and then I just left. And were, he never got that sword back. There were other fun moments, like there were godly weapons that were weapons that were owned by the gods. And like, if you picked one up and you weren't worthy of that god's power, it just killed you immediately. And we had one character who ran into a vault that had two of, or multiple of these weapons, and he picks up one weapon, and there's no reaction. He's like, okay, no big deal. And then he picks up another weapon. It almost kills him, and he's like, I was meant to be. I must merge with this god. It's like, no, the one that didn't kill you was because the god was like, yep, you're cool. I'm You're the specific person. We need to pick this up. Nope, the other one almost kills him, and he's like, ah, it's a sign. Yeah, it's a sign you shouldn't pick it up. <laughs> oh, that was a good one, actually, I think, in about it, too. Because that one, like, he met all the requirements to wield that weapon, picks it up, and it's like, huh, no reaction. Pretty much throws it to the back of the vault. Yeah. And he not worth my time. He didn't clue in that two other characters were also using these kinds of weapons and were not hurt by these weapons. Yeah, there was no reaction from the other characters, because they were worthy to wield the weapon. But yeah, I think that finishes up most of the uh, ideas we have, at least for uh, what we can fit into this episode on Dungeons & Dragons and Tabletop in general. Uh, definitely think we can come back to this topic. Uh, other aspects of it. I mean, we yeah. talked about kind of it in general. I feel like we could in the future talk about I think we, characters. and Yeah, talked about it in general. We also talked a lot more heavily from a DM's perspective than from a player's perspective. Yeah. I think we could also come back to this from a player's perspective. Oh, definitely. I feel like, not the topic of our podcast, but definitely one we can get some more episodes about. Yeah, oh, we yeah, could definitely, definitely come back to this.
Okay, well, thank you for joining us in this episode of What Is My Podcast About? Uh, tune in next time definitely to find out what our podcast could be about. Uh, make sure to uh, rate and review the podcast on any of the platforms you're using. We're available on most of them. It's uh, really helpful if you guys rate and review. Oh, definitely. We've had some review, uh, some ratings, but no reviews so far. Actually, we are, I think, on iTunes specifically, three ratings and we're at five stars. So it's probably all of our moms, honestly. But Or maybe if we, like, it could be Katie, honestly. It's probably Katie. Katie probably gave us a five-star review. She really wants to wear Matt's voice. <laughs> wear my voice? Yeah. That's what she said in the email. I don't understand. Uh, yeah. We only told her where you live, and she said she'll make sure you're fine. Great. She'll make sure no one ever touches you again. Also, if you want to possibly suggest what our podcast is about, or just say hey, or say something that might get you read off on the podcast, you can send us emails at whatismypodcastabout at gmail.com. Are you checking the email? Yes. I believe... Uh, we only have the one still. Thank yes. you, Greg. Yeah, I was just making sure we actually said the name Greg Oliver, because we did call it that this was a fan submission. I don't know for sure that we said it was from Greg Oliver, so just as a repeat, yes, this topic was suggested by a fan by the name of Greg Oliver. Um, thank you, Greg. We may have been planning on talking about it anyways, but very much so. Thank you for submitting, Greg. You had some couple of, a couple other ideas. Maybe we'll get to them. Maybe we won't. Who knows? We're fickle. Maybe we should do an episode on Greg. Let's talk about Greg. Is our podcast about Greg? It could be. <laughs> Let's find out. to seduce a child. Not a child, not a child. <laughs>